Okay, thank you guys for uh, being here this morning um, and also bearing with my uh, preaching through the mask. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're on the Davidic covenant today. Um, <clears throat> oh, I forgot. I actually have notes for people if people want it. Uh, it's in the printer still. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, and I'll just, like, I forgot how hard it is to breathe behind a mask, so I'm going to make, like, deep breaths. <sighs> Plus, I'm not the fittest person in the room, so, you know, but I'll make it through. Um, so, we're going to be talking about the Davidic Covenant, and I'm actually going to rehash some of the things that I talked about a little bit on Friday, and then go on to more things today. Uh, let's go ahead and read Second Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic Covenant. Um, so this is starting from verse 8 to 17. From the mouth of Nathan, he says, Now therefore you shall say to my servant David. Uh, this is after David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they will, they will dwell, they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I love that, that, that David's love for the Lord. I'm going to build you a house. God's like, no, I'm going to build you a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up uh, your, uh, your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will establish a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart for him, from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about the son of David. Um, the son of David, also known as the Mashiach, which is the anointed one in Hebrew, which is Messiah, which in Greek is Christ. <laughs> well, also it is Jesus, but it's Christ, right? In Greek, and so when we talk about the Son of God, uh, Son of David, um, I want to touch base on what the gospel is, because the gospel is about the Mashiach. The gospel is about the Christ, right? The gospel of Christ. Um, but when we as Gentiles think of the gospel, um, oftentimes, and we don't even realize it's arrogance, but it, it is a little bit that we think, oh yeah, the gospel started in the New Testament, you know. And then it went on from there to the earth, which we're not wrong, but we're just halfway right, in that the gospel actually started all the way from Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, the good news was that, hey, Adam, even though you sin, God has a plan. And that was the first introduction of the Mashiach, this man who will come from the seed of Eve, who will crush the serpent's head. That is the good news, right? And that's where it starts. And uh, so the idea that the Romans only cared about the Mashiach to defeat Rome is absolutely erroneous. Like the, the, 
they cared a lot more about the Messiah doing more than Rome. It just happens to be at that moment, Rome was an occupier. But Jewish understanding of their gospel from the book of Genesis has always been more than just Rome. It's been the seed of Eve which will crush the serpent's head, the serpent's head being all evil, right? And so um, the gospel of Christ and Mashiach starts in the beginning of Genesis. And then what I kind of wanted to to change a little bit and, and help, not change, but kind of illuminate a little bit more, is where we as Gentiles fall a little bit short on our understanding of the Mashiach. And, and then hopefully that'll point to, oh, sorry, Messiah. Uh, Messiah, she wants me to use English. And, <laughs> and, and hopefully it'll illuminate a little bit why the Jews hoped so much in the son of David. So we'll go to the next slide here. Um, I showed this on Friday, but a little bit of difference between Jewish and Gentile thought on the Messiah. The Gentiles saying that the Messiah is going to be spiritual, international for all the nations, a meek savior who saves us from our sin and restores the soul, right? The Jewish understanding of the Messiah, even if you talk to them today about their Messiah, he's going to be po a political person. He's going to be nationally focused, uh, specifically Israel. Um, he's going to be a warrior king, a human warrior king. And it, I always thought it was funny, but he rids us of our enemies, uh, the Jews, rids us Jews of the enemies, specifically the Gentiles, which is um, us, right? And of course, until like maybe October 7th, we didn't quite understand why the Jews need rescuing, but they do, yeah? And then he's going to restore the temple or AKA the nation. And so... The question always remains, well, who's right, right? And um, I submit to you that both are correct. It is the wisdom of God to divvy up the understanding of Mashiach amongst two brethren who have to love one another and care for one another in order to uh, come into the fullness of Christ. So um, now I wanna speak a little bit more about the Jewish side today because I wanna highlight the son of David. If you guys were all Jewish people, I'd probably speak more on the, the other side. But since we're all mostly Gentiles in here, we'll speak on that side. So if you go to the next one. Um, so the Jewish understanding of the gospel has always been apocalyptic, meaning their understanding of the gospel has been primarily focused on the end time, on a day to come. Right. Um, so I have in the notes here, if you see it, I think it's like 2-1 or something like that. Synonyms is called the day of judgment, the day of wrath, the day of vengeance, the day of trouble, great and terrible day, day of salvation, day of reckoning, the day of his coming, day of visitation. What I want to hammer in our heads is that the Jewish gospel, from what they perceived it as, it's always been something that will have its great fulfillment at the end. Okay, And so they were always looking forward to a day to come. Um, particularly that this, this Savior, this Messiah, he will bring back the remnant of Israel. So Isaiah 11, uh, 11 through 12 says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant from all these nations. He will signal for the nations. He will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So the key part being in that day, right? They're looking for a day ahead to come. So they'll gather the, the exile. Um, that's what the Messiah will do. 
another one. Oh, I put OG apocalyptic gospel because that's um, OG means um, original gangster, but it also means just the original. So that's like the original gospel from the beginning, right? Okay, the next one. So the gospel for the Jew also with their Messiah, their son of David, he will come from, uh, he will be a warrior ruler from Judah, and Judah being the Jews, right? Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what hap will happen to you in the days to come. Literally, Jacob's giving a prophecy to all his sons, particularly about what their kids will do in the end days, right? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's Gentiles. So this Mashiach, this Messiah, will have the obedience of even the Gentiles. That's the promise. Um, so another interpretation of that is until he, it, he comes to whom it belongs is another phrase, or that word is Shiloh. Um, so I want to basically hammer home to you this, is that the Jewish people, when they think of Messiah, they're not thinking primarily about the uh, restoration of the heart, the, the renewal of the inner being. Um, they might think a little bit about that, but they're mostly thinking about the restoration of Israel. That was always their hope from the beginning until the coming of the Messiah, this guy who will gather them from being scattered from the world, who will raise up the kingdom of Israel, who will shine a light forth and, and, and end evil and crush the serpent's head all throughout the world from um, Jerusalem, right? And so you have to imagine all these Jewish boys and girls growing up with that, that expectation, hey, it's going to come like this promise of Abraham, this promise it's going to come forth, and they're, they're burning with that in their bones. So much so that uh, even like John the Baptist when he preached, and Jesus when he preached, I was telling people this on Friday, like even as a preacher, like when I started preaching, I wrestled hugely with the concept that the message that John preached and Jesus preached didn't seem like the message that like I was mostly going to be preaching, which uh, their message was literally repent. The, heaven of, uh, the kingdom of heaven is near, right? John said that. Jesus said almost the exact same thing. He would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe, right? There was the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, this new age built uh, by the hands of God himself was the primary focus of their gospel. Um, this Messiah who would reign from that. Uh, even like Abraham you know, I always used to think that Abraham just um, didn't have a good GPS system or something like that, so he'd wander. What am I going to do today? And just wander, you know, like, oh, where's Abraham going today? You know, you just never know, because Abraham has his, like, you know, some people on us who have bad sense of direction, and he just wanders. He wasn't. He was looking specifically for something. He was looking for a kingdom, a city whose builder and maker is God, Right? And I was like, okay, well, John the Baptist, Jesus, Abraham, that's fine. They seem to be looking for a kingdom and yearning for a kingdom. But actually, the book of Hebrews says they all were. Can you go to the next slide? That whole Hebrews 11 line of faith, like all of them, from Daniel to Moses to all of them, 
It says, all these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It, it didn't say they were looking for somebody to cleanse them of their sins and, you know, to, so they can live their best life now. You know, like it was, they actually were looking for a homeland. It was burning on their desire for a city whose builder and maker was God. This was their gospel. Even Jesus, in Acts 1, after he raises from the dead, he does a 40-day Bible study, the best Bible study anyone has probably ever hosted in all of history. He goes through Genesis all the way to the end. He talks about the kingdom. He talks about the Messiah. And at the end of that Bible study, what do the disciples ask? They say, you know, so how do we accept you in our hearts? Right? No. They say, how do we get the Chinese people to accept you in our hearts? Accept you in our, their hearts. No. What do they ask? Go to the next slide. They ask him, after this stunning Bible study, they say, 40 days later, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? They're still about that kingdom business, right? It's, it's not because they're stubborn. It's because it is a huge part of the restoration of all things. We as Gentiles think about restoration as, you know, our vision for it is a little bit too small. Our vision for it is like, man, if God just makes me live my best life now and me and my family are good, then hallelujah, like, the full kingdom is here now. Like, God actually has a plan to restore all things. All things. Like, not just us, not just our families, but from the sky to the grass to nations to economic systems to politics to climate change to all these things. God has a restoration of all things in store. And that is what the Jewish heart is looking for is this Mashiach, this Messiah, who will be a good enough leader to lead the whole earth into that age. Even, um, even in Acts 3, uh, when the Holy Spirit falls, like Peter gives his first sermon, and he says to the Jewish people, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring, uh, the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Like, Peter's talking to a predominantly Jewish population, and he's telling them, repent. Why? So that God may send the Christ. Like, isn't that interesting? Like, it's like, hey, Peter, what were you doing for the last five years? Did you just black out or something? Like, Jesus came died for our sins, done, we're going to go to heaven, all good, right? No, he's actually yearning and longing for some part two. He's saying, like, repent. He's telling the Jewish people, repent, that he may send the Christ appointed for you so that he could fulfill that yearning in every Jewish boy and every Jewish girl's heart, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the whole entire earth until the time of restoring all. That word restoring in uh, Greek is apokatastasis. 
It means <laughs> restoring. <laughs> but it's reserved for the use of Jews from exile. Right? So Paul is, or Peter is saying he's looking for the restoration. Even today, um, the Jewish people are still in exile. Ever since Babylon, they haven't stopped being in exile. Uh, only a fragment of them came back. And since then, we have synagogues all over the world. So only half the Jewish people have returned to Israel today. They are still very much in exile. And the return of Yeshua is knit to the Jewish repentance. It says right here, repent therefore that he may send the Christ. Like there's something about the return of Christ that is knit to the repentance of the Jewish people. Go to the next slide. It says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. So your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hebrew Baruch, Haba, Bashem, Adonai. Like, <laughs> I couldn't say it on Friday. Baruch, Haba, Bashem, Adonai. Everyone say that once. Baruch, Haba, Bashem, Adonai. Jewish people have to say it. They have to say it to welcome him back. And that's the prophesied word. You will not see me again until you say that. The return of Jesus knit to Jewish repentance, knit to this idea of raising up Israel. Right? Um, so all that to say, this is the son of David. Go to the next slide. Um, the Davidic covenant that we read in the beginning, it's the promised skull crusher that finally gets a name. What do I mean by that? From the beginning, it's all been about this snake skull crusher. I can't even say the word right. Skull crusher in the Adamic covenant when it was talking about Adam. Have, have you guys ever played the game um, 20 questions, like in long car rides, where like one person's trying to think of one item and then everybody has 20 questions to finally isolate what it is? So it's almost like that with all these prophecies and these covenants. Like they're continually seeking the Lord, asking, asking, who is this person until they narrow it down, right? And the first covenant with Adam, God reveals, it'll be a human. Oh, great. That's, that's still a lot of people, right? Who is it going to be? They're wondering, who is this guy going to be who's going to end all this? I mean, and you imagine, and we know it, like, Sin is increasing the world, and like, who is it going to be? Who's going to fix this? Well, it's a human. Okay. The Abrahamic covenant, it'll be someone from a nation created by God himself. You don't have to look amongst the Chinese. You don't have to look amongst the Kenyans and the Zimbabweans and all those. Like, it'll be a nation that God himself creates. There's only one. One nation that God created. The Taiwanese. Right? Now, it's Israel. Out of all you guys from your history, none of you guys came from a nation, unless you're Jewish, none of you guys came from a nation that was created by God. Right? All of us came from uh, demon worshipers, to be honest, idol worshipers. Right? But there was one nation that God created himself, Israel, and he says the skull crusher will come from that. The Mosaic Covenant, to sum it up real short, even if this nation messes up very, 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 very badly, I'll still raise up the skull crusher. I'll still do it. I'll still fix it. It's okay. It's not contingent on them, right? 
at the end of the day. Um, the Davidic covenant is where we finally get the name. The skull crusher will be a direct human descendant of David. And finally, the Jewish people, you can imagine their excitement upon hearing this covenant because they're like, oh, okay, we finally went from humans to which nation it is, to which family group it is. We finally can attribute a name to this guy. Let's call him the son of David, right? Like, that's exciting when you can finally put a name on somebody that you've been hoping for for generations and generations. Like, it's so easy for us to be like, that's Jesus, right? We're used to that name. We love the name Jesus. I mean, we love the name Jesus. We sing, we, we, we tribute so much, and we know it, it's such an affection in our heart, but they didn't have a name to grab a hold of until the Davidic covenant, and now it's Son of David. And that name, Son of David, has such an endearment to their hearts because all their hope hinges the restoration of Israel on the son of David. Um, And you see that. Next slide. What this means for them, the gospel to the Jew, is that the son of David is the name suddenly associated with the guy who will crush the skull, rid the world of all evil and brokenness. He will bring back the children of Jacob, the Jews, from being persecuted all around the world. He'll politically rule as a leader over Israel. He'll lead Israel into a golden age that will last forever. Nations will be discipled by him into everlasting peace. That is just a tip of the the iceberg idea of what the hope of, of this son of David is. And between that point, the Davidic covenant, all the way even past Jesus' time, you see it. Their most affectionate name for him is the son of David. The thing that they hope the most is for the son of David. So much so that when Jesus is born, the first thing that the Bible says about him is he's the son of David. We could go to the next slide. Not just son of David on mom's side, but a son of David on dad's side, right? It's like a double emphasis. Uh, I, I won't read the whole thing. I can't. But David was the father of to whom Jesus was born. Starting from Jesus' side when he began his ministry. All the way going up to his dad, granddad, da-da-da. The son of David. Right? There's this emphasis that this is the guy. This is the guy. Promise, the skull crusher, who would rid the world of all evil. Now, even when the, the angel appears to Mary, go to the next slide. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He'll be great and called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, forever and his kingdom will have no end. Again, there it is. If it isn't, like Mary isn't confused about who this person is. She isn't even thinking, oh, this little baby, I'm going to need to accept him in my heart. Like, the primary thing that she's thinking about is what all the Jewish people are thinking about. He will restore Israel, and he will crush the serpent's head and fix every brokenness. The next one, even the blind men. Next slide. 
the two blind men, like even those, any kind of person at that point forward, any person who had an issue, be it in their relationships or, or in their bodies or anything that was broken, anything that was evil, anything that caused pain and suffering in their lives, this is why they suddenly would say, son of David, son of David. It wasn't that they called him Jesus or you know, wonderful counselor, mighty God, though that be his name, but that affectionate promise that there will be a leader who can fix it all. Son of David, son of David, right? The two blind men, as Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Next one. Even the masses, after the demon-possessed man was freed, then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, said that the man spoke and saw, and all these people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David, the man who will restore all things? They saw a little bit of it, and they believed him for all of it. Right? Go to the next one. The triumphal entry. This is why they were rejoicing. The crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, not just for the, the liberation of the Romans, but in their minds, the, the, the healing of all things, Hosanna, save us, God. Who knows, like, what they were thinking, like, when they said that, Hosanna, save us, save us from the suffering, save us from the brokenness of our families, save us from, from the, the oppressions of the Romans, save us from the sin of our own hearts, save us, like, save us, whatever it may be, to the son of David, the son of David who's promised to do it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Next one. Even the book of Romans, as he writes it, he starts off by concerning his son who is descended from David. According to the flesh, he's, they're all pointing towards this gospel. Repent, turn, the kingdom of God is near. The son of David is about to come into his own. Next one. Even the book of Revelation. This is no longer just Jewish stuff anymore. This is going into Gentile world. One of the elders said to me, this is, this is in, the, uh, in the throne room of God, where the ocean, the sea of glass with all the nations are there. And one of the elders says to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. He's like, good, like the root of David. You really can do it. You really will do it. It's the one reason we can weep no more is because the son of David is faithful to do what his father has sent him out to do. Okay? You know, God's faithfulness is seen throughout all scripture. It's seen throughout all creation. It's seen in your life and my life. But it's really interesting because God attributes his faithfulness primarily to one thing in scripture. Isn't that interesting? It's like, it's like if, if I told this uh, really good runner who's practicing for the Olympics, I'm like, you're so fast. You're so fast. And everyone's telling him, you're so fast. And it's true. He's very fast, right? But when he defines his fastness, he has the crowning moment. He's, he lifts up his medal and says, I won this Olympic medal gold. And this is my trophy. This is like the big evidence that I am fast, right? And it's the same thing. We tell God all the time. One of our favorite characteristics about him is his faithfulness. And it's true. Yes, he is faithful, but he has one gold medal that he holds above them all. And you see it through scripture. 
He knits his faithfulness with the ability to bring about the son of David, to sit on the throne in Israel, to elevate it higher than any other political power of the nation, to raise up the rule of the son of David over the earth, and to cause him to wipe out evil. Like, that's how God actually measures his faithfulness. Like, you can uh, see it in, in Psalm 89. You can actually turn to it if you'd like. Let's take a moment and turn to it. <coughs> this entire psalm, but not just this psalm, in the Old Testament attributed so many times over and over again. God himself speaks of his own faithfulness in terms of his ability to remember what he did with David, what he said he would do with David, and to carry it out, even when we think he would not do it, right? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever, for in my mouth I will make known your faithfulness in all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. I'm just going to skip around to different parts, but you can read it on your own. Go to the next slide. Verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly ones. You said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand will be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. Go to the next one. Psalm 89, verse 33, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Like God takes his ability and he says, you're right, I am faithful. I'm going to prove my faithfulness to all you, you guys. I'm going to prove my faithfulness. This will be the crowning jewel moment of my faithfulness is when I take that word I told to David, and even though you thought it was impossible, I will raise up the son of David to be king over all. That will be my crowning moment of faithfulness. You will see it. That's the thing he's most proud of with his faithfulness. That's what he actually challenges us to even measure his faithfulness by, to hope in, to believe in his faithfulness, that he will raise up the son of David. And you have to imagine, like, you know, the Jews, for ever since the last heir of David on the throne, um, you know, it was about 600 years that they had no, no person on the throne of David, right? Like, from the end of Judah, all the way to when Jesus arrived, there was no, no heir of David on the throne. Like you would, it, it was amazing that the Jewish people would still actually believe that some son of David will come on the throne. You'd be like, really? Like you haven't had a, a king for like on the throne of like, you haven't had David, who's David's heir? Like you barely even know. And like, how are you going to get him on the throne now? Right? Like, but they were always saying, you know, someday, like, the son of David will come. 
even today, it's like, really? Like, son of David? Like, you still believe? Like, you, the DNA test, you can barely tell if you're Jewish or not anymore. Like, how are you going to get a son of David on the throne, right? Like, but it was almost that same way with us Gentiles, the challenge of faith that they had to wrestle with to believe God, even though it looked like it was nothing. Like, for us as Gentiles, we also had to struggle through that when Jerusalem was gone, when Israel was gone. We said, ah, oh, like, that must be impossible now. This whole son of David bit must have been poetry. Like, but then people like, like even Charles Spurgeon would be like, one day Israel will come back because this thing will be fulfilled, right? One day God will bring him back and there'll be a throne and there'll be the son of David on the throne. Like, it was so silly. It's so silly to believe it, right? Especially in the days of Spurgeon when it looked impossible. Even today when it looks impossible. Still, we must believe, still by faith, because we believe God is faithfulness and he ties his faithfulness to his ability to resurrect this, hope, this hopelessness, to bring this hopelessness out, to resurrect hope that, that there will be a son of David on the throne. All the promises, the oracles of God, like he promises that this stump of Jesse, <laughs> I love it, the stump of Jesse, you guys know that verse? Isaiah 11, it looks like a stump. <laughs> like, to be honest, God, it still today looks like a stump. Maybe there's a little more green sprouting out of it a little bit. But man, if I told you, like, there was this stump that was cut down to pretty much the root, I was like, you know, one day this tree is going <laughs> to feed the city. <laughs> You're like, okay, Priscilla. Like, but God will do it. But God will do it. And when he does it, we, we'll look at it and we'll say, wow, we, it was not because we watered. It. it was no revelation of our own. It was not by our might, not by our strength. Really, God is faithful to his word. And David, like our greatest explosion of how faithful are you, God? Great is thy faithfulness. Like will be because, oh, he did have mercy on us. Son of David is actually on the throne. And he's actually going to heal all things and restore all things. He will destroy evil. He'll be full of righteousness and faithfulness. That's what uh, Isaiah 11 says. There will be peace. The wolf will lay down with the lamb. The, the child will stick their hand in the serpent's hole and not be bit. He will really do it. He'll gather the Jews from the exiles all across the world. And we will be amazed that when it looked like it was a stump, God really did bring back Israel. Not just Israel, but the king of Israel on the throne. And we will cry out just like every other person who cried out when Jesus came the first time. When we see him the second time, when we realize that God has really faithful, like that's what the Bible says, that we'll, we'll see him coming through the clouds and we'll say, faithful, faithful, true. You're true, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Like my heart, my family, my needs, the brokenness, this community, this, the countries, the wars. God, son of David, coming through the cloud, faithful and true. Have mercy. Right? Even, I love it, the end of our story, Revelation 22. Did I put it on here? I don't think I did. Oh, you can look on it in your notes. It says in the end of the Bible, even Jesus himself, 
when he finishes that whole story, he wraps up what he's about to do and how he'll come back and be with us forever. He says, I, Jesus, uh, so tender, like he actually <laughs> emphasizes, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root. This is the very end of our sacred book, our sacred, our sacred Bible. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David. The bright and morning star, behold, I am coming soon. Amen. Like, there are so many things. And I hope that today painted a picture of why the Jewish people felt so strongly like, son of David, have mercy on me, right? And even today, like, I feel this invitation to cry out for that, like, to use that title, to step into that, that hope of Israel that so many Jewish men and women have in their hearts for the holistic picture of the Messiah, that son of David, have mercy on me, son of David. And so um, I'm going to invite Becca to come up and pray, and I lead us in a time of prayer, but even just to take a little bit of that time to, to call out to the son of David for mercy over the areas of our hearts and our lives that we need him. <laughs>